For the next month, we are going to be pausing a beat on our normal book studies. We'll pick those back up in November. But for the next month, we're going to be looking at a a series of passages that teach, that communicate some different things about who God is, how he is on mission, and how we can join him in that process. And so this morning, we're going to be starting in Hebrews 1, chapter 1. And verses 1 through 4. And as I thought about missions and how this works and, and how we should be involved with God, I, I had this kind of dawning recognition and realization that if we don't understand who Jesus is, if we stumble, if we trip, if we mess up right out of the gate on who Jesus is, then missions turns into this convoluted mess. And it's just not doing anybody any good if we don't go in the bold recognition of exactly who Jesus is. We need to be crystal clear on who Jesus is because he is the hope for the nations. Jesus is is what we communicate. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who saves everybody else. But if we're foggy, if we're foggy, if we're not super clear on who he is, then we kind of walk up to somebody and say, hello, friend, I've got uh, terrific news for you. And it's it's about this guy named Jesus. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know all about him. You're like, oh, good then. You're fine. I'm going to move on down the road. But instead, you're able to walk up and talk about this Jesus who has come in, who has transformed everything about you. And you're able to tell them, do you know there's a God who loves you? Malachi 1 and verse 2. Who sent his son to die for you. That he is calling and inviting you in. And, and so, it, But if we stop there, they get the picture that, oh, this guy died for me. That's really great, but I don't really know much about him. But Hebrews 1 one through four gives us this beautiful picture, not of a, of a God who sent a son who, who just died, but of a God who sent a son who died, who rose, and is reigning, and is reigning still. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me read this for us, and then we will journey through this together. The author of Hebrews starts off, and he says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 sets up the entire book Beautifully, Hebrews is all about the supremacy, the, the inherent value and worth of Jesus over absolutely everything. And so the author begins and he tells us that, that what we need to know is that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I mean, you open up the book of Genesis and you recognize that, that God is a God who speaks. He's a God who communicates. Genesis, we read, and this God who speaks, this God who communicates, speaks the entire created existence into reality, into being. God speaks and creation takes place. But what we read in this passage is that the author is setting up this this comparison between the communication of the prophets and the communication of Jesus. So let's, let's take a moment and look at some of the communication of the prophets this morning. Uh, look at this. Flip over, to, flip over to Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is this amazing display of God speaking, okay? So you have, in the story of Exodus, Moses is leading the Israelites from Egypt. He's leading and directing them towards the promised land. 
and then he comes to Mount Sinai. He comes to Mount Sinai, and something radical happens. Something truly amazing happens. The Spirit of God begins to descend on the mountain, and we see flame, we see fire, we see smoke. I I mean, this has to be incredibly challenging, incredibly terrifying for them. They're they're following along, they're they're leading God, and then all of a sudden he begins to descend on this mountain in smoke and fire. And he calls Moses up onto the mountain with him. And we see this amazing description in verses 19 and 20. It says, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. So Moses is is up on the mountain, he he looks up, he sees smoke, he sees the whole thing trembling, and he, he speaks. He speaks. You and I will be flat on the ground, shaking, trembling, saying, please, don't consume me. Moses speaks, and God responds in cacophonous thunder. It says, and God answered him in thunder, and the Lord came down to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses at the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses calls to God, and God responds in thunder. Let your mind go there. Let your heart go there. See Mount Sinai. See this mountaintop enshrouded in cloud and flame and shaking. And Moses, with tremulous voice, calls out God, and God responds in this tremendous display of power. Of power. The ground shakes. Moses feels his clothes shake when this thunder claps out. Friends, we serve a God who speaks. We serve a God who interjects himself into creation. I think one of my favorite uh, accounts of God speaking is found in Nehemiah. Flip over to Nehemiah. Nehemiah in chapter 8, and we'll read verses 5, 6, and 8. Ezra is there, and he he is preparing to read the law. He's going to tell people what the law says to them, and then he's going to move, and he's going to apply it to their lives. And this is really where some of the the, the early preachers go in defense of what what preachers do. But you'll find out here that Ezra is decidedly more intelligible than than a lot of men that preach. Verse 5, it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood... And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. And they said, Amen, Amen. Moses gets up there, he begins to talk about God, and all the people respond, and they say, Verily and true. All the things you say, Ezra, are true for us as well. Lifting up their hands, and they bow their heads, and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. When they hear him communicate the word of the Lord, It drives them to worship. Do you catch that? Ezra gets up and he reads the law. He reads it to the people. And their hearts are rent. They put their faces down, they put their hands up, and they worship God. They're not concerned with anybody around them. They're not concerned with anything that's going on. They display to God what reverential worship looks like to them. He's not done. He says he read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. He gets up, he reads the word of God. He applies it to their life. 
And when people walk out of there, they say, this is what he said. There's no ambiguity. There's no misinformation. There's no, I think this is kind of what he was getting at. He clarifies to them what it says. We serve a God who speaks, and he speaks well. He doesn't stutter, stammer, or misspeak. And he chose for a very long time to speak through the prophets. In fact, the last recorded prophet. In Malachi chapter 1 and and in verse 2, and we went through Malachi together, so I'm not going to rehash the whole story to you. But he reminds this people, this people who who didn't see God moving and and operating in ways that they wanted to see him in, in, that in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, I have loved you. God speaks, he doesn't misstep. God speaks, he doesn't mischaracterize. God speaks, he doesn't use half-truths. God speaks clearly with truth. He applies it to our lives and he calls us to respond. And so the opening salvo that he uses there in the book of Malachi is, I have loved you, declares the Lord. But what we see him do next shakes the very foundations of understanding. You see, he chose to speak through prophets, but in the incarnation, in Jesus coming to earth, we see him speak in a decidedly different way. We see him speak through the Son. God chose to speak to us by coming in the flesh. He chose to speak to us by the Son. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's saying, look, remember, we had the Word of God. We had, we had the things that Moses wrote. We had all the prophets before, after him. We had all of these things. We have this understanding of Abraham in Genesis 12 that he, he called Abraham to go out and to be a blessing to others. Abraham was supposed to be communicating the message of God to everybody he encountered in Mesopotamia. Moses and the people of God, as they go out in the Exodus, are supposed to be coming into other kings and kingdoms and saying, this is who our God is. He's different than your God. You should follow him. This is how we have a relationship with God. God left himself, men and women, to communicate his life-transforming message that he is the one and the only true God. But in the coming of Jesus, he does something decidedly different. He comes and he lives among humanity. So the author of Hebrews in some sense says, this is what he did, but look what he's done now in these last days. He has spoken to us by the agency of his son. He has sent Jesus into the flesh, and what he's going to do is describe exactly why Jesus is supreme, exactly why Jesus is preeminent, exactly why Jesus is the best. Look at this. The first thing he says about him, he says, the son has come, he has spoken, he has spoken definitively. But he tells us that this Jesus who has spoken definitively, who has spoken to us, that this Jesus was appointed the heir of all things. He's not just some lowly carpenter from Nazareth who just kind of beat it around and then got on the wrong side of the law and they executed him. He is the heir of all things. All things return to Jesus. All things are rightfully his. All things, they're not ours. We're entrusted with them, but they all go back to him. And so when we go out and we're engaging people in our community with with evangelism, with the gospel, you walk up and and you tell people, let me tell you about the one who owns everything, about the one who has everything returning to him. You're not going out and just telling them about some good guy, somebody that you hope can, can benefit and increase, you know, 
Maybe their, their hair follicles will begin to grow again. Maybe their bank account, bank account will begin to grow again. Maybe their, their, their belly will shrink up again. No! I mean, that'd be great if all those things happened to people. I mean, I'd put that stuff in a bottle and sell it. But what we see when we go out and what we're proclaiming is Jesus, the heir of all things. Flip over to Psalm 2.8. This isn't some New Testament conception. This is something that God laid down before the foundations of the world, that he would utilize Jesus for redemptive purposes, that all things would come back to Jesus. Psalm 2.8, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. What we do in evangelism is declare what already belongs to Jesus. We're going out and we're sharing the good news with people. We're telling people how they can come to know Jesus, how their sins might be forgiven. But in some sense, we're also telling them, describing to them how he already owns everything. This isn't news to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Do you recognize him as such? Do you recognize the role of Jesus in your life as the heir of all things? Or do you say, Jesus, you own this stuff over here, but brother, you need to stay on your side of the room because this stuff is mine. Like, like, like in your life, you've laid down this tape. When I was in college, I had roommates that they were in my space all the time. It drove me nuts. I shared a room with, with four other men. Bad idea. It was three in the morning when we made that decision. And then we started moving furniture, and then we didn't want to undo it. And so for the next two years, we shared a room. We had other rooms in the house. I don't know why we did it. But people don't make good decisions after midnight. You should know that. If you, if you don't know that, write that down. That's one of those things. It's, it's not strictly a part of the message, but you need to remember that. People don't make good decisions after midnight. Some of you are like, I do. No, you don't. And so my roommates, I mean, I had, a, I had a fridge under my bed. We had a loft bed, and they would get in my fridge. And so I'd write a little note and be like, this is Matt's stuff, not your stuff. If you want your stuff in there, buy it. Right, This is my stuff. And so I put a piece of tape across the bottom of my bed and be like, this is my stuff, not your stuff. Don't come across this line unless you bring your stuff over, in which case your stuff needs to go back out. Right? Don't crowd my desk. It was small. I didn't have much room. Our lives can't be like that. Like some of us have the, the false impression that in our lives we, we put this tape neatly around certain relationships, certain hobbies, certain things we just say, look, Jesus, you can have everything, but Saturday mornings when I watch college football, you can't have that. I'm just a different person. You just wouldn't understand. Like, you can't have that. But Jesus, you, you can have most Sundays, but when the, when the Cowboys play early, you just can't have that Sunday, and you understand I'm out there, and I'm, play, I'm praying for Romo because he clearly needs it. And, and I gave up praying for, for, for Jones a long time ago because that doesn't appear to be happening. But God, you just can't have those times. You see, friends, you can't mark off areas of your life. You can't put security tape over areas of your life and say, Jesus, all of these things are yours, all of these things are mine. He is the heir of all things. It doesn't matter if you recognize it. He is ruling and reigning. And your recognition of that fact does not keep him from doing what he is going to do. He is the heir of all things. Look here. He's the heir of all things. He is also the agent of creation. We read that this Jesus who has spoken has also been the heir of, of all things, that Jesus is also through whom God created the world. Do you see how that's working there? It's this amazing thing. The Trinity is at play even in creation. 
In the beginning was God, Genesis 1-2. His spirit is over the waters. And what we see here is that Jesus is going out. God speaks and Jesus brings it into creation. Jesus is creating all of this. He created uh, the the land that that my house is built on. He made the black dirt here in Greenville that that in the wintertime is so, so soggy and in the summertime makes these huge cracks. He made the sandy dirt that that clogs my lungs and gets all over everything that I keep telling Valerie, we just need to quit dusting. We just need to raise the windows and embrace the sandiness. He made it all. He made all of these things. He made the way the grass grows here in Greenville, he made the way that it grows over in the Philippines. Flip over to Colossians 1.16. Colossians is an amazing book. It's got a lot to say about Jesus and who he is. But in 1.16, we read that it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, for by him all things were created. By the agency of Jesus, God spoke, Jesus created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. You see, friends, he's not just creating the natural world, but he is putting structures in place. He's the heir of all things. He made all things. This is the Jesus we proclaim. This is the Jesus who can transform and change Greenville, Texas. And this Jesus in verse 3, this is what we read about him. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You see, he's, he's not the moon reflecting passive light, but he is giving off his own glory. See, Jesus, is, it's not that we have God the Father and then somewhere on a lower stage we've got Jesus. So we have God the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're all God. They're all of the same glory. They're all of the same respect. And Jesus stands and he gives off his own glory. He gives off his own glory, but it is of the exact same glory as the Father. Do you remember in Exodus when Moses goes and he speaks to God and he comes back on the mountain and everybody sees Moses' face and they're like, whoa, what is that on your face? I can't handle it. It's too bright. That's the, that's the leftover imprint of the glory of God on Moses' face. You see, every time Moses goes in and he meets with God, the glory of God leaves this imprint on Moses' face that when the people see him, they say, we can't even handle the reflection of the glory of God coming off of your face. And so Moses had to start wearing a veil to cover the remnant of the glory of God that got stuck on his face and and, and on his body. Jesus projects his own glory. He shines light into the darkest of hearts. He shines light into the darkest of places. Jesus is transforming reality, and he is doing so because he is very God of very God. He's the exact same, the radiance of the glory of God. And the text tells us he's the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, by virtue of who he is, as we read in Hebrews, is God. He is God. The one you go out and proclaim to the people that you meet. The one you go out that when people say, Steve, tell me what's so different about your life. Ben, tell me what's so different about your life. John, tell me what's so different about your life. He is the glory of God. He is God. He has changed you. He owns you. Everything about you should declare that he is king that you are not. 
He's the exact imprint of his nature. And while he's doing this, we also read that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you've still got your finger in Colossians, well done. Flip back to verse 17 in the first chapter. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and all things in Him hold together. Jesus is upholding all things by the word of His power, or by His powerful word, if you want to render it a different way. That's truly amazing. Hebrews gives us this full picture in in, in closer, more succinct language. But this is what's taking place. Jesus created all things. Those things visible, those things invisible. He created everything. And it's not that he created it and put it on a shelf and said, you know, I'm just going to leave this thing be a little bit. But he is actively holding it all together. He's actively speaking and through the power of his word, holding everything together. And so he's working to maintain the imperfect, in our opinion, elasticity of the soil, which expands and contracts. He is working and controlling and keeping the ratio of the air so that we can breathe it. He breathe it. He is working and controlling and maintaining gravity so we don't get crushed and we don't float away. He is working, controlling, and maintaining everything. All the little nitpicky details of your life. That your hair happens to part on the left side and not the right side. That when your stomach gets too big, it falls over your belt. You can't see it anymore. Some of you are like, I wish you didn't control that. Or maybe a little bit more control, a little bit less gravity. He's upholding all the things by the power of his word. And this is the Jesus we profess. This is the Jesus who changes it all. See, this is why there is power and empowerment in evangelism. Because you're not going out and and communicating and expressing a God who's just really low on self-esteem, so he needs us to talk really well about him to other people. And I've got friends like that. They've got terrible self-esteem or self-image, and so they like to hear me say nice things about them. And I don't remember it very often, so most of the time they stay with really low self-esteem and and self-image. And I'm sorry if you're here and that's you. I love you. You're great. But it's not, God's not that way. He's not operating that way. He doesn't need us to go out and to tell people how good, great, and wonderful he is to make him feel good about who he is. His goodness and his greatness and his majesty aren't diminished by our actions. He's upholding all these things. And what we're doing is going out and communicating that reality to people that are blind that don't see it. He's upholding all things, even us in the moment of our communication. But you see, that's not the most amazing, that's not the most creative thing that God did through Jesus. You see, we look out and, and we see creation and, and some of you went on a, on a valleys tour, you went on a canyon tour recently. I've, I've been a number of places. You see the Alps and you think this. This is the height of creation. I remember not long after Valerie graduated college, we were on a train and, and we were going through the Alps and we went from Switzerland over into Italy and you come out the other side and, and everybody wants to sing, you know, the hills are alive with the sound. <clears throat> and then you realize nobody sings really well and everybody quickly gets really embarrassed and we move on. And then we sing it again because we're all just empowered. 
I mean, I, I look at that, and if you're out there with a naturalist, they say, and they say, this is amazing. You take a naturalist out, and, and if they're not in the city and there's no light pollution, they look up at the sky and they see the stars, and they say, this, this is absolutely wonderful. This is absolutely amazing. And some Christians are even tempted to look at that and say, this is the crowning glory of God's achievement. They take a telescope, and they look far out at the planet. And they say, this is the the crowning achievement of all of God's creation. This is the height of all that he has done. They're all pales in comparison with the movement of Jesus in salvation. You see, the author of Hebrews has been bringing us up through this crescendo of sorts. He's been moving and describing. He says he created all things. He's the heir of all things. He's holding it all up by the power of his word. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But then he moves through all of these things, and he tells us that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You see, God moved and he did all these things. He established all these things, and then he sent his son into this world. And he made purification for sins. He came in, he found us uh, wrapped in our muck and our mire and our sins and our disbelief and our anger and our pride and our lust and all the things that we have going wrong for us. And Jesus offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for all of these things. He made purification. He made a way for humanity to be clean, to be wiped clean, to be purified. He took sin and eradicated its stench for all those who would believe, for all those who would confess. But look at the finality of what he did. You see, Jesus comes in and he offers purification for sins. He fixes it. Everything that has gone wrong, every misspoken word, every, every errant thought, every action. And he purifies it. But it's not that he, he purifies it and he starts heading to the chair and he looks back over and he's like, man, Jimmy messed up again. I got to get back over there. It, it, it's not that he, he, he purified it and he headed towards the throne and thought, man, I really hope they don't mess this up. I really hope they don't undo all the work that I've done. See, the text tells us that after making purification for sins, after offering cleansing for sins, he sits down. So we don't sit down until the job is done. What the text tells us that, that in this final act and testimony of the completeness of his action, he offers purification for sins, and he sits down. But he sits down in a very particular place. He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus takes the honored and privileged spot. He is sitting and reigning and ruling still at the right hand of God, declaring to all those who receive the sacrifice of Jesus that it is finished. The work of Christ is completed. There is nothing deficient lacking for you to make up. For you, it is to receive. You can't add to salvation because it's done. Once you come to be saved by Jesus, once he calls you from darkness and into light, you can't lose that because you didn't do anything to earn that. 
He declares you righteous. He makes you saved. He moves you from darkness and into light. And after he has done these things, after he has established and made a way for men and women to come to salvation, he sits down. He's done. That's the Jesus we proclaim. See, we don't declare some anemic, weak, knobbly need Jesus who can't affect eternity. But we, affect, we proclaim, we communicate a Jesus who God established before the foundations of the world that he would come and offer salvation to humanity. And we read in Acts that there is no other name by which men and women might be saved other than the name of Jesus. It is the name above all names. And what we read in Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, this great hymn about Jesus. See, that, that humility is in Jesus' mind. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, greedily uh, held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He left the heavens, he came down. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the horrid death on a cross. As a result of doing this, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we see in in Christ's coming, in his dying, in his surrendering up his life, in him him rising again and sitting at the right hand of majesty on high, is he is attaining a name that is above all names. And that is why we read in verse 4, it says that he has become much superior to angels. As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There was a temptation to believe that angels were some higher and and, and enthroned being. And so the author of Hebrews writes and says, you have no idea. Angels were nothing more than ministering spirits, but this Jesus who is involved in creation, this Jesus who has all things returning to himself, this Jesus who is the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, this Jesus who's upholding all things by the power of his word, this Jesus who after making purification of sin sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, this Jesus, it is by his name and his name alone that we might be saved. You see, that is what we do in sharing the gospel. That is the security. That is the enabling. This is how we live. Some of you, you're tempted to think that you serve this Savior who's just weak and he's effeminate, he's, he's emasculated, and he just can't affect things in your life. Do you recognize that he's already established all of these things? He's the one holding your life together. Some of you think that, that, that somehow that you've been imbued with this amazing ability to, to juggle all the things going on in your life. You're keeping family in line. You're keeping work in line. You're keeping your spiritual life in line. So you've got all these balls and you're throwing them up in the air and you're juggling. And you think you've got it all under control until one of them falls and then you think, well, now I've, oh man. You see, it's in that moment. It's in that moment, just when you think you've got it all under control, 
that you need to recognize. Jesus is the one upholding all these things. Jesus is the one at the center of it all. In evangelism, in our hope and desire to see revival come in our hearts and come in our neighbors and come in our community, in this bold reporting of the good news, this is the Jesus we proclaim. Because friends, there is no other man, there is no other name that can affect eternal change. Do you see that? So over the next few weeks, as we begin to look and, and, and pray and inwardly ask, God, where would you have me to serve? Where would you have me to serve in this community? Where would you have me to serve in this church? You recognize that you are doing these things. Not through the empowerment of, of you and because you're such a great and wonderful person, but you're doing these things in the bold and powerful name of Jesus. And Jesus is the bedrock of all that we do, both here locally, in the state, nationally, and internationally. We've got to be clear on who Jesus is. Jesus is supreme over all. Let me pray for us.